I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. This is a special audio podcast exclusive of the program. We're delighted to welcome today Congressman Steve Israel. He is director of the Institute of Politics and Global Affairs at Cornell University. And of course, he's a long-serving public servant. Uh, Welcome to the program, Congressman. Well, thanks for having me on, Alexander. Uh, I hope you and yours in Nassau County and the family scattered across the country are staying well. We are. Um, Long Island and New York City, as you know, uh, has been an epicenter for COVID-19. My wife actually works for Governor Cuomo uh, in economic development, so it has been, uh, she has been extremely busy, um, and, uh, but we've been healthy. Thanks for asking. I was struck by your op-ed, and of course, those of you know that Congressman Israel served as a Democratic representative in Congress from 01 to 17. He's also an author of some excellent books that he's published since leaving Congress. But I was struck by your op-ed in the Times. Congress can do its job without spreading the coronavirus. For lawmakers, voting remotely is not about avoiding work. It's about safety. And of course, that's the nature of the ongoing quarantine Um, and stay-at-home orders in effect in the hotspots where we are taking proper public health protocols. Um, But I just want to ask you bluntly, what has been the resistance to adopting um, an electronic voting system for representatives? You know, I have, uh, despite uh, the fact that I left Congress in uh, January of 2017, uh, unindicted and undefeated, by the way, uh, I remain in touch with my colleagues on both sides of the aisle. And I would say that there are several points of resistance. Uh, Some are institutionalists, and they just believe very deeply in the tradition uh, of a Congress that meets on the floor of the House of Representatives, uh, that casts its vote. They argue, you know, we did it during World War II. We did it uh, during or just a, in the aftermath of 9-11, uh, and uh, we have a constitutional responsibility to get to Washington, D.C. and cast our votes. Uh, and uh, any sense of uh, or any scheme with remote voting or electronic voting uh, off of Capitol Hill bothers them. Um, there are others uh, who oppose uh, remote voting uh, because they believe that it could somehow be manipulated or exploited, perhaps subject to a cyber attack. Uh, and that there, uh, we do not yet have um, uh, any uh, secure way to ensure the integrity uh, of remote voting. They believe that we have to wait for the technology to, uh, to uh, be developed before those mechanisms uh, are started. Um, I, uh, as I wrote in the New York Times last week, I understand those arguments, but I believe that Congress has a an ultimate responsibility to the American people to keep the American people safe. Uh, and you have to remember, voting is probably one of the most unhygienic uh, and um, uh, it's a health hazard under normal conditions. Uh, and to have a bunch of members of Congress come to Washington and vote, uh, potentially uh, create health hazards for the cafeteria workers and the, the people who clean the Capitol and uh, the congressional staff and then go back to their districts I think is very dangerous. Well, it does seem like a no-brainer from that perspective. I understand the resistance to establishing an electronic voting system for the whole electorate by November 2020. That wouldn't be feasible. But it certainly seems like there could be a foolproof technological answer 
when it comes to the House of Representatives in the Senate being able to perform their duties electronically. Uh, the technology exists to do it competently. And uh, of course, there are only so many members in each body and they can testify to the veracity of their votes uh, through a telephone confirmation. So I, I don't see there being a technological argument. Uh, this could work. And so it comes down to the fact that um, this has been presented to Speaker Pelosi and uh, probably considered by Speaker Pelosi, uh, as well as um, Leader McConnell. So mm -hmm. if the technology exists to protect the integrity of representatives' votes, uh, is there a situation you believe in these coming weeks and months when debate and voting will convert into a virtual forum? Yeah, I think we're headed in that direction based on the conversations I have had with my former colleagues. The most popular proposal uh, is, like everything else in Washington, D.C., a compromise. Uh, it was proposed uh, to the House Democratic Caucus by Congressman Jim McGovern, uh, who is the chairman of the House Rules Committee. Uh, his approach would allow most members to remain at home while a few remain physically present and cast their votes on behalf of their colleagues. This is called proxy voting. Uh, McGovern calls this approach purposefully low-tech uh, because it would allow members to entrust their votes uh, to a colleague. Uh, the members uh, who remain home would, would tell the colleague how they want their vote cast on a specific issue. That is very easily checked, confirmed, validated. Uh, members on the floor uh, would cast those votes uh, and uh, it would be absolutely transparent. That a proposal seems to have a, at this point, a critical mass of support by the congressional leadership, uh, by others. Uh, and right now, uh, I think that the, or I'm told that the House leadership uh, is measuring that proposal against the uh, real-time health considerations uh, posed by COVID-19. Washington, D.C., uh, you know, is right now kind of at the peak. Uh, so they're waiting to see what the best medical advice is uh, and health advice by the attending physician of the Capitol. If the attending physician's advice is that Washington not, uh, that Congress not return to the House, then I think you're going to see a much more robust uh, debate uh, and uh, decisions by, by Congress with respect to proxy voting. Once we move on from that conversation, I don't think we should yet uh, because it, it, it speaks to a resistance to new technologies uh, more broadly uh, and a refusal to modernize and democratize legislation. And I'm sure you have prescriptions beyond electronic voting. Um, and, I, and I want you to flesh that out. The, the two areas I want to be sure to cover with you today, Congressman, are the United States Postal Service uh, and the delivery of vote-by-mail for the majority of states um, that will make it available this fall. So on the subject of funding for USPS, um, are you confident that there will be a fully or sufficiently funded postal service for November? And what can listeners who are civic actors and engaged in decision-making at the local level, what, they, what can they do to ensure that there is a functioning postal service for 
mail-in balloting by November? Well, that uh, the issue of the Postal Service will be absolutely critical as Congress begins to deliberate and debate the next phase of coronavirus relief. Now, as, as you know, uh, there are some, including the President of the United States, uh, who, in my view, have a proactively hostile position towards the Postal Office, the uh, Postal Service. They want to privatize it completely. Um, this is non-negotiable to House Democrats. They will not allow uh, any uh, diminution uh, of the ability of the Postal Service to do its job. It's one of the first missions of the federal government since the creation of the federal government. So this is likely to be a real sticking point. And politically, I'd be very surprised uh, if the Republicans in the House and the Senate are willing to go down in flames uh, over the issue of whether the Postal Service ought to be prioritized. I mean, when I was in Congress, the big battle was whether the Postal Service should suspend six-day delivery and go to five-day delivery and not deliver on Saturdays. And that was like World War III. Uh, so I can't imagine why Republicans would be willing to fight the good fight uh, over the ability of the post office to do its job, uh, you know, uh, one day a week or two day a week. And privatization is just not, I, I don't see them falling on their swords on privatization of the Postal Service. Are there any other provisions that they could insist on uh, that would have an injurious effect on voter access in funding the Postal Service? The dividing line right now between Democrats and Republicans uh, on the future phases of, of COVID virus relief uh, include uh, the Democrats' desire to continue to fund and support the Postal Service, Republicans, or the Rep Republican president is opposed to that. Democrats are insisting uh, that the funding be allocated to robust vote by mail uh, programs and initiatives across the country so that you don't have to expose yourself to elevated health risk by participating in democracy. Uh, Republicans seem to be opposed to that. Uh, beyond those issues, there are major fault lines. Uh, Republicans uh, seem to want a fairly low uh, amount of funding for state and local governments. Nancy Pelosi has said could be a trillion, maybe two trillion, maybe more. Uh, there's a proposal by Republican Senator Bill Cassidy from Louisiana to, uh, to provide $500 billion in aid to state and local governments. So, um, and then, of course, Republicans uh, want to, as a condition of any further uh, uh, relief bills, uh, they want to um, free uh, corporations from any liability uh, or companies or businesses from any liability if they open up and then somebody uses their services uh, and uh, somehow uh, is infected or contracts uh, the virus. So those are uh, the fault lines. Uh, you know, look, I think all of those can be negotiated and all of those can be resolved. But I'll tell you, what, what I really worry about is the November election is going to be inhibited by Congress's inability to ensure the right uh, of Americans to vote and access uh, to, to that process. Right. Well, that is a concerning situation. I mean, you'll recall with Superstorm Hurricane Sandy mm -hmm. uh, that even though that was not election day, it was uh, preceding the election, that um, there were real issues with the integrity of voting and the need for provisional balloting and other measures to ensure access. And um, 
we in New York, considering the impact of the storm, I think did a decent job in uh, ensuring that people did have access uh, who were dislocated or whose communities lack power. Um, in this situation, we're, we're not necessarily as concerned about New York because Governor Cuomo has uh, seemed to direct uh, for these upcoming primary uh, contests, but it sounds like for the general election too, no excuse, vote by mail. Um, but you know, the, what what is a consideration now is what steps need to be taken um, beyond this election, beyond November, to protect the integrity and access to voting. And your op-ed raised to me the importance of democratizing the vote um, and considering electronic and online balloting be, you know, beyond um, congressional votes, but for Americans in our lifetimes uh, to be able to vote online. Um, and this is, of course, not something that's discussed with any regularity, but it is something that the U.S. Election Commissioner, um, U.S. Election Assistance Commissioner Emeritus, Paul DiGregorio, and I have talked about on the podcast, um, and that is the need to consider, you know, the next generation of innovation uh, for our democracy that's going to engender more participation. So, you know, I, I know it's, it's not an easy thing to grapple with, um, but have you given any serious thought to um, how we can transition ultimately to online or electronic balloting for the mass public? Oh, gosh, I've been in this space very deeply. Um, and let me just back up a little bit and tell you my, my first shocking exposure to uh, low tech in Congress. Uh, before I was elected to the Congress, uh, I was uh, a congressional staffer uh, many, many years ago. Uh, in uh, the early 1980s. And I remember showing up to my first day on the job in a congressional office, and I literally saw a pail of water in front of uh, our office door in the Rayburn House office building. And for weeks, I just kind of stepped over that pail of water uh, every morning uh, and noticed that the pail had been taken away in the afternoon. And finally, I asked this question, why is there a pail of water outside every congressional office? And the answer was that before congressional offices had refrigerators, they had ice boxes. And in those days of the ice box, there was a daily delivery of ice to every congressional office. Now the ice melted and nobody needed the ice for the ice boxes because every, all congressional offices had refrigerators and still Congress served itself to a pail of ice and soon ice water and soon lukewarm water uh, on a daily basis. So that should give you a sense of how resistant the United States Congress can be to uh, the advancement of technologies and to change. Now with respect, now apply that kind of mentality to how we vote. Um, Congress in fact has been very resistant to the kinds of uh, technologies that would ensure that our votes are cast efficiently, transparently, and uh, include a maximum number of voters. And think about this, I'll make my final point on this question. Uh, why do we vote on Tuesdays? Why are federal elections held on Tuesdays? Do, do you know by any chance? 
Well, it had to do with the way that you, you uh, went by horse, didn't it? That's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly. You're one of the few people who know this. We vote yeah. on Tuesdays because when Congress set federal elections, I think it was somewhere in 1848, uh, it was based on an agrarian economy. And so Sunday was the Lord's Day. Couldn't, you couldn't get to your county seat to vote on Sunday, right? Monday, uh, you were able to travel to your county seat. You would vote in your county seat on Tuesday, get back to the farm on Wednesday, and farm on Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We're still operating under that antiquated, uh, rather romantic notion of a society all these years later. We've got to get beyond that and uh, understand that we now have a way of safely developing apps and electronic voting and online voting uh, that will ensure our democracy, but at, while at the same time modernizing it. Sure. Well, you know, and, and I'm on that page with you, and that's what your important op-ed evoked. Uh, the the two um, mountainous challenges, uh, or at least the, the two public perceptions that are most challenging when it comes to this transition um, have to do with the poor judgment and uh, poor results of technology. I'm thinking of two things specifically, the failure of the computation in Iowa with the caucus and the Democratic Party's botching of, of that caucus. Um, and, you know, I'm talking about the entirety of the 2016 campaign in which a foreign nemesis hijacked our public consciousness, really took ownership of Facebook and Twitter, our US-based social media apparatus, to infect it with disinformation and to depress turnout um, and to, you know, lead be a leading condition of uh, the electoral outcome. Right. And so, you know, these are looming significantly in our minds, and yet there's not really an, a robust counteroffensive, uh, but I want you to tell me if I'm wrong, that, you know, there are do-gooders in the technology sector uh, who want to extend some of the programs that have been established to protect overseas voters, military, DOD officials overseas. Um, the West Virginia Secretary of State, for instance, implemented this in their state for um, service members abroad. Paul DiGregorio talks about case studies of piloted online voting in countries like South Korea, Australia, Canada. Uh, so I, I just, as someone who's so expert in government, um, where is the movement towards this to sort of say, yes, there are these malevolent forces in technology, but we can counteract them and start a movement that's going to produce democratizing and effective results for democracy? Well, this is, of course, part of the debate in, uh, in, on Capitol Hill. Uh, you know, there are some who say that we ought to uh, advanced technology to ensure uh, the maximization of democracy. There are others who oppose not only high technology, but use low technology uh, in order to obstruct people's right to vote. I mean, there are, I'm sad, sad to say, but there are many members of Congress uh, who will do everything possible in order to disenfranchise people, particularly low-income people, people of color, um, uh, students, college students, 
because when those, uh, those folks vote, they tend to vote for the other party. Ultimately, this is about the intersection of technology and policy. You know, we have good technologies that can protect the right of people to vote and make voting accessible. But those good technologies are joined with bad policies, policies by the federal government that don't allow those technologies to uh, uh, ensure uh, greater voting. You can have uh, good technology and you can have bad technology and bad policy. You can have all sorts of permutations. Ultimately, what we want to do is get to a point where we have good, strong policies that are supporting the growth of technology that strengthens, secures, and expands the democratic process in America, which means we need less bad policy and less bad policymakers uh, and continued investments and prioritization of good technologies. So how do you get there? I mean, how can we practically get there? It's even a sort of a, a myth to imagine that there are communities that would pilot online balloting, even as essential as that could be to do during a pandemic. I mean, even mailing ballots and having election officials mm -hmm. uh, grabbing them and transferring hands and fingerprints. I mean, even that poses a, a health risk. Yeah. So I mean, I'll give you one example, something that we can do immediately. Uh, and it doesn't require, uh, you know, any major technological overhaul. Senator Amy Klobuchar and Senator Ron Wyden uh, have a bill uh, that would, in fact, ensure safe voting when you have unprecedented national emergencies. Uh, you know, this bill has been pending in the Senate for quite some time. Uh, it would fund, it's called the National Disaster and Emergency Ballot Act of 2020. It would help state and local officials deal with the pandemic. It would guarantee that every voter receives a secure mail-in paper ballot. It would help states cover the, coast, uh, the costs of those things, uh, invest in ballot tracking and, and postage, uh, and provide for a reliable way for Americans to exercise their constitutional rights. Now, President Trump says he's against it because that kind of voting, that access to voting, uh, can be corrupted. And yet President Trump votes by absentee ballot from Mar-a-Lago in Florida. So if it's good enough for President Trump to vote by absentee ballot, it should be good enough for the, uh, the rest of the American people to do so. Right. So, you know, you are both in real life and as a novelist, the author of Big Guns and The Global War on Morris, uh, someone who, you know, lives and breathes politics. So, I don't want you to prognosticate uncomfortably about the fate of this republic. Mm -hmm. uh, you've done so in reality, and you've done so in with with great uh, literary prowess. Um, but with with just anticipating November, what would you be? Uh, what would you assess as the realistic scenario, and maybe then the best case scenario? Well, first of all, when you say I live and breathe politics, uh, that might be true, but that could also be worse than the, vi the uh, COVID virus itself. I'm, I'm trying to, <laughs> to reduce the, the likelihood of infection by living and breathing politics. I think um, 2020 is going to be a very close election, and I, I do live and breathe this. I look at it every day and speak across the country on it now by, by uh, virtual, uh, in virtual conferences. Look, uh, here's what it comes down to. 
this election is over for 80% of the American people. 80% of the American electorate have already made it, has already made a judgment on whether they love or loathe Donald Trump. That leaves only 20%. And that 20% is only relevant in the seven electoral college battleground states. And within those seven electoral college battleground states, there are about 20 to 30 counties that are historically swing counties that will either vote for Trump by a small margin or Biden by a small margin. So the bottom line is that this election rests in 20 to 30 counties in seven states among 20% of the undecided voters. Right now, President Trump is underwater in uh, those areas. If he remains underwater, if the economy really continues to struggle or gets even worse, if the virus uh, continues to challenge our health workers, uh, I, I think he has a very tough time winning, uh, although I, I continue to predict that either way, this is going to be a very, very close election, which means every vote will count, which means we should make every vote easy to cast. Even with Vice President Biden as the Democratic nominee, the presumptive nominee at this point, you still think it will be close? Yeah, again, because uh, it's in those seven battleground states. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll quickly give you an example. Kenosha County, Wisconsin, uh, voted for Barack Obama and Joe Biden twice, which is why they both won Wisconsin, which is how they won the Electoral College. Kenosha County, Wisconsin, by the way, just outside of Milwaukee, uh, voted for Donald Trump by less than a percentage point, giving Trump a victory in Wisconsin making him president. So I know this is kind of simplistic and granular, but whoever wins Kenosha County, Wisconsin, has a better chance of winning the presidency. And, you know, there are counties like that, obviously, in Colorado and North Carolina and Florida. Um, it, it seems, though, just as a final question, Congressman, that when you have Senate candidates like Cunningham, uh, like Hickenlooper, yeah. um, that there could be a 2008 referendum consensus style victory, especially with the upsetting and, and even um, really unpatriotic uh, and appalling response to the public health crisis. Mm -hmm. um, I just, I, I don't hear you saying that we could get to that kind of resounding McCain, uh, Obama victory over McCain, uh, where the map really did uh, fluctuate. I don't hear you suggesting that's a possibility. It, look, we are far more polarized in 2020 than we were in 2008 as a result of congressional gerrymandering, the tribalization of the media, our ability to curate our own news. Uh, but you don't see, you don't see the, the fatigue with the Iraq war as being something that could be replicated with the fatigue of an incompetent, inept, um, and vicious uh, uh, response that was just lacking any empathy to this so crisis. Really, it's a really good question. What really kind of the, the first dent in the Bush uh, presidency uh, after re-election was Katrina, uh, what many regarded as uh, incompetent handle, handling of a national emergency uh, in, in Louisiana. Um, COVID could be uh, even worse than Katrina in terms of uh, people's response to it politically. Uh, so if, in fact, we go into October 
uh, and people still feel highly unsettled by the virus. Uh, the economy is still suffering uh, as a result of the virus. If those conditions exist, obviously, uh, President Trump will have a much harder time winning. He, look, he had, he, going into his election before COVID, he was going to run on the economy. Best economy ever in the history of economies. Uh, he can't run on the economy now. It's going to be struggling, sadly. Uh, and then he was also, in addition to the economy, he was going to run on, uh, you can't vote for the Democrats because they're a bu bunch of socialists. Well, Joe Biden is not a socialist. So he can't run on those two messages. Ironically, the message that he was vulnerable on was on health care. He wanted, he's very vulnerable on the issue of health care, trying to dismantle Obamacare, trying to take away people's protections from pre-existing conditions. Ironically, that may be the main narrative going into the November election. You could, the economy's in trouble. Uh, Joe Biden is a, not a socialist, he's a moderate. Oh, and by the way, when we're all so concerned about this virus and our loved ones and the need for affordable, accessible health care, we have a president in Donald Trump who tried to dismantle those health care protections. If that's the narrative going in, uh, obviously, uh, Biden uh, has a, uh, a higher percentage. Um, either way, we're a very closely divided nation. Uh, so I think it's going to be, st we're still, we're, I don't think we're going to have a crushing mandate uh, in November on either side of the ledger. Retired Congressman Steve Israel, Director of the Institute of Politics and Global Affairs at Cornell University and author of Big Guns, and the global war on Morris. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, sir.